You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Gabby Giffords, Peter Ambler, and Greg Gregory join John Woodrow Cox to discuss his new book, Children Under Fire, An American Crisis, and what is being done to protect children physically and emotionally from gun violence today. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. My name is John Woodrow Cox. I'm a staff writer at the Washington Post. I'm also the author of a new book that published last week, Children Under Fire, An American Crisis. It is my great privilege to be joined today by former U.S. Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. She is the co-founder of one of the most prominent gun safety organizations in the United States. She is also a survivor uh, of gun violence. She was shot in the head in January of 2011 in an attack in Arizona that left six people dead. Also with us is Peter Ambler. He is the executive director and co-founder of the Giffords organization. And also uh, with us is Greg Gregory. He is a former Republican state senator from South Carolina. Thank you all so much for being here today. Uh, Gabby, I'd like to start with uh, the day's big news. Uh, President Biden uh, announced last night, his administration announced last night, some new executive actions to address gun violence in America, things like uh, regulating ghost guns and the nomination of one of Gifford's own, uh, David Shipman, to head up the ATF. So I, I just wanted to get your reaction to today's news. So excited. Joe Biden, get her done, get her done, get her done. It's absolutely a significant action the president took today, so we're very excited. So, Gabby, I'd like to go back uh, to the beginning of your fight for change, where this all started. And a lot of people, I think, don't know that it was actually uh, the Sandy Hook shooting in December 2012 that inspired you and your husband, Senator Mark Kelly, to found your organization. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about how that shooting at Sandy Hook affected you. Stopping gun violence takes courage. The courage to do what's right, the courage of new ideas. I've seen great courage when my life was on the line. Now is the time to come together, be responsible, Democrats, Republicans, everyone. We must never stop fighting. Fight, fight, fight. Be bold. Be courageous. The nation's counting on you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Gabby. I'd, I'd, like, to, uh, I'd like to turn to Greg Gregory, uh, who recently left office uh, after a lengthy term on the South Carolina State Senate. Uh, Greg is a Republican, and he plays a really prominent role in one chapter of the book that uh, delves into the NRA's influence. Uh, Greg, after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida in 2018, you stood up in front of the South Carolina State Senate and delivered a speech calling for new gun laws. And I'd just like to play a portion of that speech right now. The first thing we need to do, in my opinion, with regard to gun violence in our country is quit rationalizing it. We need to quit rationalizing gun violence and talking about any time one of these incidents happens that this is the price of freedom. 
that's a load of malarkey. You know, I heard some commentator of Fox News after the Las Vegas shooting where a guy shot up a crowd of people, shot over 500 rounds of ammunition into a crowd of people, say that's the price of freedom. If you believe that, I mean, you need to find another line of work and get out of political commentating. Because nowhere else in the developed world is this going on. No, not even in an uncivilized world, this is not happening. So, Greg, what was it specifically about the shooting at Parkland that led you to speak up? Well, just that I'd had enough. Um, and I'd long been interested in the issue. And, of course, uh, our body, the South Carolina Senate, was affected uh, by gun violence and that one of our members, uh, Senator Clementa Pinckney, was killed in the Charleston massacre. And he was probably the most beloved member of our body. Everybody liked the guy. And he was as genteel as they come, yet he was shot down um, in a prayer group by you know a madman with a gun wanting to start a race war. And I just was already frustrated um, that we as a body in the South Carolina Senate had not gotten any traction to close the Charleston loophole, among other issues. Um, and then Las Vegas happened, and then Parkland happened, and I just had enough where I felt I needed to take the floor and speak out. So, Greg, I wonder wh why don't more Republicans back gun laws that the vast majority of Americans support? Well, I think it goes back to the primary process, as so many other issues in America do. Um, you know, if you're going to lose your seat in the legislature or, or Congress, you're most likely going to lose it in a primary uh, rather than a general election. And in primaries, uh, people that uh, are hard left or hard right are generally the ones that are coming out to vote because they have the most interest, it seems, in voting, um, whereas those in the middle uh, are you know, staying home or not getting involved in primaries. And uh, I think as far as the gun issue is concerned that, um, you know, in Republican districts, especially swing districts, those in the suburbs that, you know, those in the middle, moderates, uh, suburban moms that care about this issue, they've got to get involved and vote in the primaries and they need to let their voices uh, be heard with regard to uh, Republican legislators. I think, you know, all Republicans for the most part, when these type things happen, you know, cringe, um, but they're really afraid to take action. They just, I think, kind of quietly hope that the problem is going to go away, but it's not going to go away. I mean, it's a macabre fad um, that uh, has been going on now for, you know, um, 20, almost 20 years or longer. And uh, we just had an incident tragically um, in the Gates County over from where I live yesterday, a mass shooting where a prominent doctor his wife and a six-year-old and nine-year-old uh, children uh, were all shot and killed along with one other person. And that's uh, just, you know, just the latest incident in the last, you know, two or three weeks. So, Greg, how much, in your view, does the gun lobby actually play an influence or play a role in uh, how Republican lawmakers vote? It, it plays a role, but I think that... Um, outside of the gun lobby that there's a lot of pressure on Republican legislators from constituents that allowed, you know, 10 to 15% um, that uh, don't want any changes in gun laws. Uh, they think that the government's coming for their guns. 
they think that you know just uh, one percent move to the other side of the ledger is eventually going to lead to confiscation of their guns. And as legislators, you just have to, I think, uh, marginalize those people. I mean, you only need fifty-one percent to win, and you know the, the crazy people um, over on the you know the far edges of the debate just have to be ignored for effective policy to come about. So, uh, Peter, uh, the, the book delves uh, really deeply into child access prevention laws. And for those who don't know, these are laws that basically mandate that gun owners uh, not allow their children uh, access to their weapons. And I wonder, though, why we don't hear more about these child access prevention laws on Capitol Hill. Well, I think it's um, one of the reasons is that it's more of a state federal response question, right? Uh, if you're looking at you know, a child access prevention law that's probably something that is going to be happening at the state or municipal level and doesn't really enter into the purview of Congress. Uh, you know, I know, of course, that universal background checks are back on the table again. Uh, and, you know, I think that that is a thing that can impact children's lives more than people think. And I wonder if you could explain how universal background checks could, could actually benefit uh, children in this country. Absolutely. I mean, universal background checks is the you know single biggest thing that we can do to bring down rates of gun violence in this country, address this problem for what it is, which is a public health crisis. There are roughly 20% of firearm transactions that are estimated by academics to occur without a universal background check. Um, uh, background checks stop kids from being able to buy guns. Um, and they stop guns from being able to be trafficked from states with weak gun laws to states with strong gun laws. Um, we know that there are three and a half million people over the years that are prohibited from being able to own a gun who have been stopped by the background check. What we don't know is who's uh, slipping through the cracks. How many of those three and a half million then went into the unregulated market to procure a gun? Um, and with readier access to firearms, you see the proliferation of community violence. You see the proliferation of shootings in schools. And um, the cost to America's children is manifest. You have since Columbine 150,000 children who have been exposed to gun violence in schools. Um, and that doesn't even count the hundreds of thousands more who are exposed on a daily basis in their communities. We work with young people all across the country. And um, you talk about school violence, but then you have folks, um, many of whom live in black and brown communities, who talk about the walk to school and the exposure to gun violence that they get doing that and the trauma that ensues. Um, you look at you know, guns being the third leading cause of death for young people. 17% of America's teens have been exposed to gun violence in some way, shape, or form. And let's sit with this stat, um, of those children um, who are exposed to gun violence, 40% will develop post-traumatic stress disorder, which is just such a huge slice of our population and the, you know, the kids who are part of it. We have a national movement aimed at addressing PTSD from our you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen who come back from conflicts overseas, but when they get home, um, we're inflicting, you know, PTSD on our children from gun violence um, due to a problem that we have the ability to solve, but not the political will to. 
You know, of everything that uh, the Biden administration announced yesterday, uh, maybe maybe what's coming, is there one specific thing that you think would make a really big difference uh, in kids' lives, something that maybe that was missing or that was included in uh, these new actions? Um, well, I, I think when it comes to gun violence, um, it's a you know complex matrix of failure that we as a society have. Um, so there's never you know that one thing that that you can do, right? Um, and that's always the wrong question to ask, right? There's a horrible you know gun violence tragedy. Um, the wrong question to ask is what could we have done to have stopped this one specific thing from happening that you know relates to this one specific fact pattern? Um, what the right question to ask is, is what can we do to prevent the most shootings from taking place in the future? One, um, you know, very significant action that the president took yesterday and today that I'll drive everybody's attention to is a deep $1 billion investment in community violence intervention programs. And this, these are real dollars that are going to flow to um, programs based in communities across the country that are having the worst epidemics of gun violence that um, studies have shown, that these programs have shown, um, can result in precipitous declines in um, homicides and shootings when inadequately and implemented correctly. Uh, so uh, just really quickly, I know that I mentioned earlier that uh, one of Gifford's own, uh, David Shipman, is going to be the nominee for the new head of the ATF. I've, I've interviewed uh, David at, at great length. He's a real policy expert, former ATF agent. Um, I wonder if you could uh, just quickly speak to why he is well positioned to do that job. Uh, Gabby and I um, have been lucky enough to be advised by David over the past several years. Um, we're so proud of him. But the experience that I would point to is the 25 years at ATF. Um, he served on SWAT, he um, investigated the Oklahoma City bombing, he investigated and helped um, solve a series of um, racially motivated uh, church arsons in Alabama. Um, he has um, had great positions of responsibility. As the Attorney General said, he came up through the ranks um, and he's somebody who uh, can provide vital, necessary leadership uh, at ATF and help make this country a safer place. So, Greg, uh, you told me something really fascinating during an interview that I did with you for the book. And you said that part of the motivation for you to find compromise with people uh, you know, who want gun safety reform is actually to protect the Second Amendment. It's something that you view it as a way to save it. So I wondered if, if you could speak to that, why you don't think it might survive two decades from now if there isn't compromise uh, today. Right, so uh, guns were something I was quite interested in as a young man and uh, growing up hunting and shooting targets and that type thing. So it was probably one of the you know things I was most interested in um, in my teenage years. And uh, my grandfather uh, hunted and taught me, you know, how to handle guns safely. So I uh, just kind of had a, a love affair with, with shotguns, mainly growing up. And so it concerns me that, as it does, you know, millions of other people, that eventually uh, the right to own a gun could be lost. Um, and I think that the, there is, you know, a possibility of that without uh, meaningful reform, because as mentioned earlier, 
these type of incidents are going to continue. You've got a number of deranged people out there that want to make a name for themselves, uh, you know, killing more people than anybody's ever killed before. Uh, Las Vegas um, certainly, uh, you know, is an incredibly horrific event, but who's to say that something worse can happen? I mean, who's to say that at an SEC football game where people are massing up to get into the stadium, that somebody doesn't shoot a thousand people? And if and when that does happen, then, you know, it's going to be eventually very difficult to uh, hold back, I think, the tide of uh, growing public sentiment that is against guns in this country. Only, I think, one third of households in the country uh, own guns. And so, you know, two thirds don't. And I think the people that uh, do um, you know, support gun ownership, one of which I'm, of whom I am, uh, need to pay attention to that and need to pay attention to public sentiment and not just what's happening today, but where we could be 10 years from now without some meaningful change that keeps guns out of the hands of people that should not have them. So Greg, are there any gun laws in your view that you think a majority of Republicans would support? And that's either on Capitol Hill or in a state uh, legislature. Well, in my experience in the Senate in South Carolina is that most Republicans did support uh, a bill I was trying to advance. Um, we got into some personality quarrels and so forth that uh, kept that from happening, um, as, often, as is often the case with legislation. But uh, we were working on a bill um, that was uh, based off a bill from around 2014 called a Bolin bill, uh, which prohibited uh, people in South Carolina who had been adjudicated for mental illness uh, from being able to purchase a weapon as they legally should not have been able to do, but we improved the process of reporting the names of those people to the NICS database, and that's kept uh, a number of really thousands of people from purchasing a weapon. Um, that happened from an incident at uh, a girls' school in Charleston where a woman bought a gun and tried to shoot up um, the people in the, in the parking lot uh, waiting for their children to get out of school. Fortunately, she didn't know how to operate the gun and it jammed, but she uh, had been adjudicated for mental illness but was still able to buy the gun legally. What we'd like to, what we were working on was shortening the process with reporting the names to the database. Now in South Carolina, there's a 30-day window um, that those names can be reported to the database and we wanted to shorten that to five and that kind of originated from the Charleston massacre and Dylan Roof who purchased his gun primarily due to an error by the FBI with regard to the database and the jurisdiction in which he was booked. Um, it's complicated but nonetheless he shouldn't have been able to buy the gun because he had a conviction uh, that should have put his name in the database and it wasn't so he wanted to shorten the, the time frame for somebody who's say convicted of or charged with CDV, but then the agency would have 30 days to get their name in the database and they still in that 30 day period could go out and buy a gun. So obviously another really important part of this conversation about gun violence is uh, recovery. That you know, many kids who I write about in this book are, are still suffering from debilitating PTSD. Um, that includes one little girl named Ava who lives in South Carolina. She survived a school shooting there. She's still, uh, even five years later, still suffering from uh, really significant symptoms. She had to be uh, 
pulled out of school. She um, has threatened to hurt herself. She's gone through a half a dozen therapists and has uh, really struggled at times. Uh, and of course, Gabby, uh, you are one of the most well-known gun violence survivors in America. And as it happens, uh, Ava is a really big admirer of yours and uh, how hard that you have fought to persevere. I, I've read that soon after your shooting that you could only say a couple of words. And I wondered if you could talk about that, just sort of in the very beginning, only being able to say those few words. What? 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 Chicken, chicken, chicken. Chicken, 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 chicken. I remember, you know, in, in, in the first days, um, those were some of the only things that Gabby's been able to say. And today, despite her, her challenges with aphasia, she gives lengthy speeches. She's able to participate in conversations like this. Um, and what always strikes me is like, what goes into that, right? That other people across the country don't get to see. Um, you know, to be able to do what I take for granted, um, to you know, take a step, to say a word, same with you, um, you know, Gabby literally puts in thousands upon thousands of hours of practice and therapy. Um, not a day goes by where she's not in some way, shape or form putting in grueling, oftentimes frustrating work um, to contribute to her recovery, to be able fundamentally to be able to sit here today and have this conversation. Right. You know, Gabby, uh, with everything you have been through, I wonder how optimistic you are about your uh, recovery. I'm optimistic. It will be a long, hard haul, but I'm optimistic. Getting better every day. Every day. And it's, you know, it's remarkable. I don't think a lot of people understand what all you have been through and what it takes for you to be uh, in a place like this today. Uh, you know, survivors of gun violence, and this is especially true of children, they often uh, want to give up. And so, Gabby, I wonder what you tell yourself when things are really difficult. No way, Jose. Move ahead. Never quit. You know, Peter, I wonder if you could speak to uh, the impact that Giffords has had. I mean, I find it so remarkable that Gabby has had this impact on the world, right, on this country. When you think of gun violence organizations, you think of Moms Demand, you think of Giffords. There's, there's a handful. You think of Brady. So can you explain for our audience you know, why Gabby's been able to do that, why you've been able to do that. Uh, yeah, if you could just put words to that. Absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, Giffords is an expression of Gabby's commitment to end gun violence and her values as a person and a leader. Um, we, you know, I, I worked for Gabby in Congress. I um, worked for her when, when she was shot. You know, we lost our colleague, Gabe Zimmerman, who was Gabby's constituent services director, um, obviously Christina Taylor, Taylor Green, who you knew, you know about, was nine years old, born in 9-11, um, had a bright future ahead of her, wanted to meet her congresswoman, and was shot and killed before she was able to be. Um, but Gabby, her entire career is somebody who's brought folks together. Okay. And Giffords is a, you know, we have our Giffords Law Center, we have Giffords, we have Giffords PAC, 
um, we're sort of vertically integrated. We're a machine that um, looks at policy in an evidence-based way, lifts up the most compelling solutions. Um, we draft that legislation. We uh, lobby Congress and, of course, the administration um, very successfully these, these days. Um, uh, and then, you know, uh, state legislatures across the country to take action. We've passed over 400 pieces of legislation in the past several years in state capitals. Um, and that's been very exciting. Um, but, you know, so Gabby is not just a survivor of gun violence, right? She's a gun owner as well. So, you know, she's somebody who really bridges these worlds and oh, um, has been able to travel across the country at first sort of, you know, physically and, you know, more, more recently, more virtually, and launch uh, chapters of Gun Owners for Safety. We are closing in on 100,000 gun owners organized. Um, and I think that's something that's really ultimately going to tip the political scales because for so long, the NRA um, thought they were this monolithic voice for gun owners. Turned out all the time they had us fooled and they're in fact just speaking for the firearms industry, for the big gun lobby. Um, when, as we know, you know, 90% of, not only 90% of Americans support universal background checks, but 90% of gun owners support universal background checks. And Gabby, you know, wanted to, you know, roll up her sleeves and get out into the country and actually organize these people. And that's what she and, you know, talented team at, at Giffords and a lot of great activists across, across the country have been able to do. And that's why the politics are changing, right? Like the shift in the politics. Greg mentioned, you know, getting these um, moderate um, sort of independent type Republicans to vote in primaries, right? Um, what, what's happening is those voters are becoming Democrats and they're becoming Democrats on issues like gun violence prevention. And I think if the Republican Party wants to stay relevant in you know, huge swaths of the country, right, that are urban, suburban, exurban, that are diverse, um, then they're going to have to get right on guns because the country's heading in a different direction. Um, and that's why, like, we're sitting here today where we have a gun safety majority in the House, we've got a gun safety majority in the Senate, and we've got um, a man and a woman in the White House who ran on the strongest gun safety ticket in history and won. Um, so we're very optimistic. We think we've won the political argument on gun safety and uh, looking forward to translating that into big policy wins like we did today. And you're still on you, mute. There you go. You do sound really optimistic. Uh, uh, and just, so just one quick how, final How question. could I not be optimistic when I'm sitting next to Gabby Giffords, right? <laughs> Well, I, I want to I get one more thing, though, because I think there, there is a lot of optimism among gun reform groups, but the filibuster still exists, and you still have to get to 60 votes, and I think there's a lot of doubt uh, on Capitol Hill that that's going to be possible. So I just wondered if you could quickly speak to that. Do you think that is possible, and if so, why? I think the Senate's going to act. I don't think they have a choice. Um, when you have a problem as pervasive as gun violence is, um, you saw in 2020 the biggest year-over-year -year spike in shootings in decades. Um, you now have America sort of returning to normal, um, seeing that light at the end of the tunnel, but already seeing the shadows, already understanding um, that this return to normal isn't good enough, that we need to you know, stop the shootings in Atlanta, stop the shootings in Chicago, stop shootings like the one in Boulder. And, um, you know, if Congress is unable 
to take a problem as serious as gun violence that is such a leading cause of mortality, such a big public safety and public health crisis, when there is a solution available that's as effective and as popular as universal background checks, which 90% of Americans support, um, there's tremendous uh, pressure, not just on these individual senators, but on Congress and on the Senate as an institution to act. If we can't find a path forward on this, I don't know what we can find a path forward on. So I am sad to say that we're out of time and we'll have to leave things there. Uh, Gabby Giffords, Peter Ambler, and Greg Gregory, thank you all so much for being here today. This was such a powerful conversation. And read the book. It's a, a central read. Uh, we, we, we enjoyed it and enjoyed talking to you about it. Thank you. Uh, and I hope all uh, everybody who's watching right now will please join us tomorrow at 9 a.m. Eastern. My colleague Jonathan Capehart will talk with Post reporters and columnists about the biggest news stories of the day. My name is John Woodrow Cox, uh, and you can find my new book, Children Under Fire, An American Crisis, anywhere that books are sold. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.